Hello, and welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, and I'm your host. Today we're going to be talking about John 3.16, but before we get into that, uh, just a few quick things. Uh, Let's see, the Doctrinal Discipleship webpage is up and going. So on that page, there's going to be lots of resources where um, Luke from the Study Anchor podcast has, he's got show notes for his episodes. I'll be talking to him about getting show notes for my episodes. Um, We've also got other articles um, that me and Luke will be putting up and um, our good friend Landon and maybe a few other people. We'll put up some articles as well. So that's exciting. We've got a website. Um, You can also get our podcasts from the website directly. Um, Today's just, well, this week has been an interesting week. It's actually July 4th as I'm recording, but um, yeah, it's been an interesting week. Uh, My wife and I got chased down by some teenage boys while we were driving like she picked me up from work at 11 o'clock at night and there were some teenage boys just playing in the street because what else do you do in the southern suburbs of chicago at 11 o'clock at night except for playing the road and chase down cars and then there was another there was a guy who (laughs) was in our like we have a little bit of space and like behind our apartment and there was a kid who was shirtless for i mean i guess it's hot but it was just strange there was like a 15 year old boy who was shirtless and looking at us through our window and waving at us so it's been an interesting week to say the least so anyways um this is where we're getting into the stuff that i'm really excited about for this podcast we are talking about bible verses Um, specifically verses that are quite often taken out of context, but I really hope that this show will be a show that really focuses on carefully and, um, (laughs) yeah, just carefully looking at the scriptures and not just, um, reading one verse as a proof text for something, but, um, if we're you know, if you're going to have a theological conviction, I hope you don't just have one proof text for it, but you have multiple full passages or multiple verses that say the similar thing. Um, so yeah, we're going to be, this is kind of where I'm hoping we'll be for the next however long. I mean, we'll talk about other theological stuff, but today we're we're starting the journey of really expositing and exegeting the text and putting it in its context and looking at what what might possibly be behind um, the author's intention in writing what they wrote and how God is using that to formulate his whole grand meta narrative. So let's read John 3.16 and then we'll talk about, you know, how it's pop like the popular ways it's been taken out of context, uh, some issues 
that it has, and then um, we'll read the whole passage and put it, hopefully, put it back in its rightful context. So, John 3.16, as most of you probably know, is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'm reading out of the NASB, and I will be for pretty much every episode. Um, I have Logos Bible software pulled up. Great software. Um, I have an inner, it's basically an interlinear um, Bible, which is really neat. So it's got the NASB wording, and then it has the Greek wording. And then underneath that Greek wording, it has um, the root of each Greek word. So that's very helpful. So you might hear me reference Greek when we're talking about the New Testament or Hebrew when we're talking about the Old Testament. I might talk about the Septuagint when we get to the Old Testament. But so uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I was just taken out of context. Um, I would think one of the most blatant ways that you can really tell it's out of context is this universal this idea of universalism um that god so loved the world you know we place well not we but i've heard it the emphasis placed on the world and that god loves the world and therefore because god has love for the world that means that the whole world will be saved um which is really strange. It doesn't really take into account the whoever believes in him part of the verse, but that's just kind of how um, I've heard it. Not maybe not as direct as that, but it's kind of this idea that, you know, God loves the whole world and therefore he loves every single person that's in the world. And it is the exact same kind of love for every person that's in the world which means that every person will probably be saved anyways. That's a huge issue. It's very problematic with the rest of the passage, as we'll see. Um, I've also heard it pointed in the other direction of um, focusing on whoever believes as a counter-argument against it, where it only focuses on... Um, whoever whosoever believes it doesn't focus on the fact that god does indeed love everyone um that's not as prominent i guess today you might also hear it um emphasize like escapism which if you're not familiar with what that is that's basically just the idea that you believe in god and you shoot off into heaven and that's it. Like the earth isn't really a good place to be. Um, you just kind of want to get right with God while you're still here. And then eventually one day, like you live your life and the whole goal of life on earth is that you would be, you would escape from earth and join God in heaven, which that I believe is the most prominent way that this verse is taken out of context. Um, whoever believes in God will inherit eternal life and therefore eternal life, we equate that with heaven, which I guess is kind of equivalent. Um, but I've also heard it said that eternal life starts um, 
while all life is in one sense eternal because uh, at the time of judgment you will either be eternally living or eternally dying and so in I guess <laughs> this might be a bit of a stretch <laughs> but in, in a sense you know there's eternal punishment so people are alive for eternity but they're also dying and being punished so anyways the idea of escapism is really pushed with this verse i'm going to stop talking about the eternal life thing because that's a bit of a stretch but um there's my wife coming home from grocery shopping say hi cammy hi um let's see escapism is yeah by far the easiest way to take this verse out of context just believe in god and one day you'll shoot off to heaven and that's all you really need to do just believe in him um there's really no accountability for your belief just and this is also i think where calvinism kind of gets a bad rep because um at the school that i'm at um it's a nazarene university and for some reason the biggest problem they have with the five uh with the tulip the five doctrines of uh, Calvinism or five points is they have a huge issue with perseverance of the saints. They don't really care about limited atonement. Uh, I mean, they have a problem with that. Um, They have a problem with unconditional election, but they don't really focus a lot of attention there. They, they really care about perseverance of the saints because in their mind, how I've heard it argued is So you're telling me that a person can just believe in God and just live a sinful life and then they'll still be saved? And then a someone and then a person who really cares and is trying to work after loving God won't be saved because God just does what he wants, which is absolutely ridiculous and doesn't line up with Calvinism at all because if there is such a person that is truly trying to honor and glorify God, then that's evidence enough that they uh, likely have been saved and do have faith in Jesus and will be in heaven. <laughs> They're like we as Calvinists believe that people don't honor God and they don't want to. And to keep it in simple terms, they just don't want to honor God because that's how they are from birth. Um, So that, I mean, yeah, escapism. And then the last one, I kind of was hinting at it as an Arminian proof text. Um, Maybe I wasn't hinting at it that well, but I've also heard this pushed that um, God so loved the world And so um, the way that it gets pushed is, you know, God loves the whole world, which right there is inserting a word, the whole world. It doesn't say that. Um, It just says God so loved the world. But anyways, um, they put the emphasis on the world. And, you know, because God loves the world, he's giving every person in the world the same opportunity to believe, which... I'm not really going to get into that because that might take us down a really long 
rabbit trail. So those are just three of some of the biggest ways that I've seen this text taken out of context. Um, universalism, escapism, and an Arminian proof text. I believe that the whole Bible supports Calvinism. Um, I was listening to the Reformed Brotherhood a couple weeks ago, and well, it was earlier this week or last week. I don't remember. Everything's a big blur at this point. <laughs> um, so they were talking. They were actually talking about John three sixteen and how Calvinists are sometimes afraid to use this verse because. When, because it says God loves the world, um, they're like, it's kind of like some spooky bad juju. Like, you don't want to um, say God loves the whole world because then that might negate the doctrine of election. But it's it's still a part of our understanding of the gospel that God doesn't just. We'll see when we get to the context that Jesus uses when he. Um, like the couple verses before this that he's not talking about um, loving the world in a in the salvific sense he's talking about it in the whole broad sense that he's loving people from all places of the world um, he is going to effectually save call and save people from all places of the world. So I'm going to read this whole passage. It's John 3, 1 through 21, and we'll spend most of our time focusing on verses 14 to the to 21, but I just want to read it so that we're kind of understanding what's going on before and after verse 16. So, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. 
that the light has come into the world, and men loved the world rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So the first thing that I want to really point out is that there's kind of a cyclical um, conversation that happens where Jesus makes a statement at the beginning and then he makes a statement at the end um, in order to emphasize the point that's made. So he says, uh, one must be born again and he cannot... Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then, in verse 21, he says, He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Um, There's also a contrast between um, light and dark. This is kind of where it's more obvious. This is a judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And then there's also, um, where is the verse? That which is uh, born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse six. So there's a contrast between flesh and spirit and then uh, dark and light which is really, really interesting. But the important part for understanding verse 16, I would say, is verses 14 and 15, and then the following 17, 18, and 19 are all really important. So verse 14 says, As Moses lifted up, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So 14 and 15, what's going on here is there should be a red flag that goes up where you see as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, immediately you should be thinking, at least this is how it's written, that you read this or hear it and immediately you start to think of Um, The story in Numbers 21, which, let me pull it up. I forgot to do that before I started recording. But basically the story is that there's um, Israelites, they're wandering, and they start to question God and speak against him and against Moses doubting that, you know, they're actually going to inherit a good land. And so here is Numbers 21, starting in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 9. The people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord, that he may remove 
the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So there's a problem with the Israelites, which many, um, I mean, many people say that Israel is a type or a foreshadow of the church, or it's a small scale type or foreshadow of the whole world, a, you know, disobedient people that God is saving. Uh, I think, I think the best way to understand it is the church that um, we are, you know, Israel is a type or a foreshadow of the church, that they are God's people, and God is faithfully trying to, and effectively saving those people that he has foreordained. So, here we're seeing in this story of God's saving of his people, there's doubt, there's disobedience, um, and God righteously and justly sends a punishment on these people. You know, they're doubting, the Israelites are doubting God, so they're uh, justly punished for it. And so, here we're seeing the problem. This is this is the problem that should come to mind when you hear the reference of as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So it's not just about the serpent being lifted up, but it's also recognizing that there is a problem with all of humanity, that we are all perishing just like the Israelites. So the serpent that's lifted up is an act that's done in order to um, bring salvation and bring life for those who trust that God can actually save people, and that he does actually save people. So, whoever believes that the serpent would, that this bronze serpent would save them, they would have life. And Jesus makes this connection. He says that, similar to this serpent in the wilderness, this is the same thing where the Son of Man must be like that serpent and be raised up so that people who look upon that upon the cross would believe in uh would believe in Jesus or sorry those who look upon the cross and trust that uh God is saving his people through the cross they will be saved and have eternal life and then we get to verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this is a descriptor of God's saving act um, through the Son. It's the culmination of redemptive history. It's the like the, the climax of redemptive history, that God is coming down in the flesh and being crucified. As you see later in the narrative of John, he's crucified, and that's how he's raised up. So that whoever looks at, you know, uh, the sun being raised up would um, have eternal life. 
Um, and then we've got the next verse, verse 17, which is off, which is also, uh, quite often taken out of context. But before we get there, I want to contrast, um, just what we've said so far with universalism, escapism, and the Armenian proof text that we were talking about. So with universalism, it's the idea that all people will be saved, which if you, I hope we're paying attention to what I was saying with Numbers 21. There were already people that were perishing. They already died. There were some that already died. So um, if we're contrasting it properly with how Jesus is speaking of the serpent being raised up, then we're understanding that there already are people that are perishing, and there will continue to be people who are perishing from this judgment that God has sent. Um, the And I'm going to call this... Um, the serpents that are biting people, I'm going to call that a judgment specifically for the sake of what is later said in verse 18. So I think that that is already enough that this text verse 16 does not support universalism in any way. Um, And also to get into the Greek grammar a bit, it doesn't, it doesn't speak of it in ways that we kind of want it to where it says literally God gave or he gave the only one of a kind son so that all of the believing in him ones, that's all one phrase. They're all connected, which is really neat that you can do that in Greek, but it's all of the ones who believe in him. So it's already a limited phrase and it's limited to only those who believe in him. Anyone who doesn't believe in him will perish, right? If we take the um, negative statement of shall not perish and turn it into a positive statement, they will perish if they do not believe. Uh, This is something that's really interesting to do with passages. If you're having a hard time understanding it, you might take um, something that's said in a negative way or a positive way and then invert it into a positive or negative respectfully. So if we say that whoever believes in him shall not perish, you could also say that whoever doesn't believe in him will perish. This doesn't always work, but it's a helpful tool and a helpful way to examine a text in order to understand it. So, escapism, does this passage demonstrate escapism? No. And this isn't just because of my own, what, I, like what I've already believed, even though I have already believed that escapism is heretical and doesn't jive well with the biblical story, but... Um, this, I mean, specifically, like, with Numbers 21, they, the Israelites who look upon the, the bronze serpent live, they don't just shoot up off into heaven. And that's not a perfect contrast. Um, and we need to understand that with how the Old Testament is used by the New Testament authors, is it's not always a perfect contrast, but there's certain images that are specifically being pulled from the Old Testament for a specific purpose. 
And this specific purpose is just the idea that you look upon the one who is raised up and uh, and then you will be saved. Um, you might also understand this as not just Jesus being raised up on the, well, no, I'm not going to say that. Sorry, I was going to, I was going to say something that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, the last one is, okay, well, with escapism, let's look at the next couple of verses and see if it still um, fits. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does... Yeah, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So there's this negative contrast that I was talking about earlier. Um, Sometimes the text will do it for you. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Uh, We'll just finish out the passage. For everyone who does evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Um, I think, so with escapism, and I mean universalism and the Arminian proof text as well, like those three ideas, we just need to be careful in general that we're not saying something that the text doesn't say. So, it doesn't say that every single person will be saved. It doesn't specifically describe what eternal life means. Now, there's plenty of other passages. Uh, don't jump on me for this, because there's plenty of other passages that explain what eternal life is, what that entails. But I'm just talking about specifically 4 verse 16. They will not perish, but they will have eternal life. That doesn't mean that you will directly just, you know, get out of hell, that doesn't mean you'll get your get out of hell free pass, and then, you know, you can live your life, whatever. Um, it just says that they will have eternal life. And I've heard it said that eternal life starts as soon as you believe in Jesus, because you are under the sovereign rule and reign of God, uh, you're under the acknowledged sovereign rule and reign of God, you become part of the family of God. And um, I think it's first Peter or second Peter that talks about us being um, aliens and sojourners, um, basically exiles in while we're on earth. Um, But we're still part of the kingdom. Uh, We're still part of this bigger story that's unfolding while we're on earth. And so, also with, I just want to address this last point with the Arminian proof text that, you know, we have this free will and all people have the same opportunity to um, believe in, in God, which the opportunity that we have in order to um, trust in Jesus is at the preaching of the gospel. Now, here's what I mean. Let me go to Romans 10. I wasn't 
thinking I was going to do this. This is just kind of off, off the cuff. Um, I think that's probably how a lot of, unfortunately, how a lot of this is going to go. I'm just going to talk and go off the cuff. Um, so in Romans 10, I want to be consistent that I am talking about context when I bring up a proof text. Um, chap- chapter 9, 10, and 11 are seen as a sequential one big argument that Paul is making specifically about Israel and the role that it plays in the whole story of um, God's salvation of his people. So chapters one through eight are kind of setting this up. And then there's this huge peak or climax in nine, 10 and 11. And then in 12 through 16 is this, it's the practical living. So you get the gospel what it means for God's people and then, or what it means for Israel in light of God's people. And then what does it mean practically for all of God's people? So where is this? Okay. So chapter 10 in Romans verse eight But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, this is a very similar language, verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, as we're seeing in verse, in John three sixteen, That whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. But, we must acknowledge that this is limited to whoever will call on the name of the Lord. If you don't call on the name of the Lord, if you don't believe that Jesus can and will save you, then you won't be saved. But then, here's what's really important. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Um, Is God giving the same opportunity to all people? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news who bring good news of good things. In other words, people won't repent, they won't believe unless they hear the good news. And so uh, this verse, John three sixteen, is important in our sharing of the good news. Um but it I would say that it's also not the entirety of the good news. And that's kind of where it falls short when we throw it on a billboard or on a bumper sticker is that it doesn't share the bad news before the good news. So if you say God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Like what's the point of me believing that if I don't think that I need to be saved? That's why it's important to understand verses 14 and 15 and the reference to numbers 21 and the, um, 
perishing of the Israelites and relating that to the perishing of us as humans, we need to understand that we are all perishing and that's why we need Jesus to be lifted up on the cross just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole uh, so that we would be saved. If we're only looking at verse 16, there's no need for me to be saved. It's just, okay, God loves the world. He loves me as I am. But that's not what this text is saying. It's saying that God already has love for the world and he wants them to be changed. Uh, He wants to save them. This is God's desire that he would save the people who look on the sun. So it's kind of missing a couple things like uh, the things that we might commonly share in our gospel presentation, the holiness of God. It does share about the love of God, which is an important distinction to make, um, but it doesn't share the holiness and then contrast it with our unholiness and our sinfulness. Um, It doesn't mention necessary repentance and a life that is lived for the you know the rest of your time on earth of repentance and living as a slave and a slave to Christ um it doesn't directly talk about Christ's accomplished work on the cross so in other words um it doesn't share the bad news in order to necessitate the good news um Let's see how much time we've got. Okay, 38 minutes. Wow. Uh, I'm going to try to hopefully keep these episodes under an hour. <laughs> uh, my goal was to hit 30 minutes, but I don't think we're get, we're already past that. So I already mentioned verse 17 gets taken out of context pretty quickly, pretty regularly. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is describing it's adding on to the description of verse 16. So 16 and 17 work together to describe what was said in uh, 14 and 15. So it's also um, some, I feel like I should throw this in there. It's not super important, but some people argue whether verses 16 to 21 were spoken by Jesus or if they weren't spoken by Jesus. Some think that it's just John commentating based on like stylistic things. Um, The grammar, it's not really that important because it's still God's inspired word. Um, So verse 17, God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I've heard this verse specifically taken And I've used, I've unfortunately used it for this exact same purpose of saying, Jesus didn't judge the world, so I'm not supposed to judge the world. Well, here's the problem with saying that, is that Jesus doesn't judge the world because he doesn't need to, because anyone who's not believing in him is already judged. Uh, and, And speaking of this judgment is a little bit different than how we might understand judgment as 21st century Westerners. Um, You know, we understand judgment as like, 
I mean, there's so many ways to say it, like talking down to someone, um, thinking of them differently, criticizing them, uh, however you want to say it. I think people are essentially afraid of being viewed at as different. And so they use this word like don't, or this phrase, don't judge me. Like, don't look at me differently. Don't think that I'm different because of X, Y, and Z. That's not what this verse is talking about at all. It's talking about the wrath of God. So, he who believes in Jesus is not under the wrath of God, Crinitai, judged. He who does not believe has already been judged um and this is in the perfect tense in greek which means that it's an event or uh an action that has already been accomplished it's in the did i already say it's in the perfect it's already happened and it has continuing effects so they i would say that it's before the foundation of the world they've already been judged God has already acknowledged that they he knows that they won't believe, so they have already been judged. Um, and then the the word a day already emphat- like makes the perfect emphatic because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So those who believe in him will not be under the wrath of God. They are no longer under the wrath of God, but those who do not believe have already been under the wrath of God and will face it. And this is how this judgment has been made, verse 19 and 20 and uh, 21. This is the judgment, or this is uh, the standard that is used in order to decide this judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And here in verse 21 is where we get the contrast of being born again. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Um, and this word wrought is kind of a, it's just not a common word, but it's probably the most accurate way to, to say it. But it basically means like to do, um, uh, like to work. It's been, uh, worked out by God. So God is the one who has done the work, which that makes it a bit clearer of what we're talking about, that we need to be born of the spirit. And so anyone who practices the truth does come to the light because God has done the work in that person so that they will come to the light and they will do the deeds that God desires them to do because they have a 
entirely different heart. Like Ezekiel 36 says that um, God makes a promise of the new covenant, which we are under, that um, he will take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And so when he does that, he's doing the work, uh, er God's am I, he's doing the work in us. So, let's see. I think that's that's as far as we're going to go. So, God loved the world. Oh, one last thing that I want to, I wanted to make sure that I, um, I've got notes in front of me, but a lot of times when I make notes, I do this when I preach as well, I make notes and then I like to have a clear train of thought, but it's, the notes are basically just to keep me kind of on track. I hardly ever like stick directly to what I have on the page, which might be a problem. Um, but I think it's kind of fun to just kind of go off the cuff and say what comes to my mind as I'm talking. But this is a, this has been on my mind, um, as I've been focusing on this verse the past week and thinking about ways that it might be applied. So I've talked about the contrast between Israel and the world. Um, and here's what I think is fascinating. And I might be overemphasizing this, but I, I think that this is probably one of the most important aspects of understanding this is so Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him, uh, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So then our brain shoots to numbers 21. We remember the story where Moses lifts up the serpent and who is it talking about Israel? That's the answer. He's talking about Israel. So we should think that for God so loved Israel, because the Messiah is Israel's savior, for God so loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's what we would expect, but instead we get this broader even further unimaginable love that God has for people beyond the Israelites that is God so loved the world rather than Israel. And Israel is included as part of the world so that he gives his only begotten son that anyone, not just the Israelites, you don't have to be circumcised and become an Israelite and follow the law and on top of that, believe in the Son of God. But it's plain and simple that whoever believes in him, that he is enough to save, uh, will be saved. Anyone from across the globe. So it's this really beautiful, all-inclusive, but all-exclusive message. It's this wonderful paradox of the gospel that it's open for anyone from all people across the world and not just a specific nation, which this is what I'm trying to get at when I say that the Armenian proof text doesn't exactly work Um, because it's not just specifically saying that all people across the world have the same 
opportunity because as I've said, the gospel needs to be preached in order for a person to have an opportunity to repent. But on top of that, it is God um, giving all people, all different kinds of people across the world, an opportunity to repent through our preaching of this gospel and uh, sharing about the resurrection of Jesus that um, our life doesn't end when we die. Um, We continue in life even after death and we are joined with our Savior. So that's all I got to say about that as Forrest Gump would say. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Follow Christ in Context on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'll link those in the description. Um, Check out the Doctrinal Discipleship page. That's uh, where, you know, I'm connected with the Doctrinal Discipleship page. Uh, Check out Steady Anchor Podcast. It's my good friend, Luke. Um, He's got wonderful stuff. And... We'll catch you next time.